This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to episode 26 of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 today, which uh, begins the second creation account. Have you ever noticed that there is a second creation account? Some people just sort of think that Genesis chapter 2 is a continuation of the creation account, but that's not the case. In fact, when you compare Genesis 1 with Genesis 2, there actually turns out to be several key differences between these two accounts. So as we begin to look at Genesis chapter 2 today, we're going to figure out what is going on and whether or not these differences prove that there are errors and contradictions in the Bible. Lots of people see these differences and say, see, see, contradictions. Well, it's these sorts of issues and questions we will be looking at today when we look at Genesis 2, 4 through 6. And thank you for joining me. I know I took about three weeks off from the podcast. That's supposedly a big no-no in the podcasting world, but it was necessary for me so that I could adequately study and prepare and research for this, uh, for this next chapter of Genesis. Um, I thought I was ready, but then I, I learned some more things that I just had to include, and I sort of had to plan out where we're going. So I'm excited to share, begin to share with you some of what I've learned today. Before we get to that, I do want to share with you someone's uh, review that they left on iTunes. This one comes from Sam Riviera, and he writes this. Thought you knew what those verses meant after you read them in your Bible? Maybe there is more. Probably a lot more. What might the experts in historical background, languages, and other religions have to add? Tune in to Jeremy's weekly podcasts and find out. He has done his homework, and we are all the beneficiaries of his labors. Well, thank you, Sam, for that review. It means an awful lot to me. Thank you very much. A very kind review. Those of you who read the blog, uh, redeeminggod.com, might uh, recognize Sam is a frequent commenter on the blog post there. A big part of the community. So thank you, Sam, for that review. Thank you for your contributions. He's also a a frequent guest poster on the blog. In fact, as I uh, record this, there's a guest post that he is writing that uh, I'm excited to publish sometime in the next three weeks or so. Anyway, thank you, Sam, for that review. It means an awful lot. If you haven't left a review yet, you can do that. Just go over to iTunes, search for Jeremy Myers or the One Verse Podcast, and leave a rating and review, and uh, I will read yours in a future podcast episode as well. By the way, uh, if you have a blog or a book or a podcast or some sort of product of your own that you would like to promote, you would like to get the word out, uh, you can become a um, an advertiser, a, a sponsor of the One Verse podcast. It's really, really cheap. It's only, what, $20 an episode or something like that. So you can uh, go to redeeminggod.com slash advertise, and uh, there's more details there. Uh, that way, word can get out about your blog, your book, your podcast, uh, whatever it is. Obviously, I'm not going to promote any everything and anything. I need to approve it. And it needs to be something I believe in. So uh, go over there, fill out the form, and uh, begin the conversation, and we'll see what we can do. Right now, just so you know, the podcasts get about three to 400 listens per episode. So for 20 bucks, that's a screaming deal. Uh, you, you can let people know about your book for, for uh, you know, 400 people for about 20 bucks. Anyway, 
Uh, with that in mind, let's get on to the text, the study today for Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Now, if you've been listening from the beginning, this is the 26th episode of the One Verse podcast, which means we've been doing this for 26 weeks, which is half a year. And <laughs> we've made it through one whole chapter of the Bible in those 26 weeks. Uh, that is a pace. The, the blistering pace of two chapters a year. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, which means we will be done in 594 years. Yes! <laughs> are you planning on sticking around? I am. <laughs> uh, as long as there's podcasting in heaven. Anyway, uh, today we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, 4 through 6, and it contains these uh, opening statements of the second creation account in Genesis. Now, before we uh, get to our text for that episode, I sort of want to give you a preview, which is um, a preview of what we're going to be seeing in Genesis 2, 4 through, uh, 2 3, and 4, those three chapters. And this is sort of what caused me to take the delay in getting this podcast out. I believe that these three chapters are foundational to the rest of the Bible. I believe that a proper understanding of these these three chapters, Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4, are required, a proper understanding of these are required to properly understand the rest of Scripture. These three chapters are critical for what they teach about the origins and character of mankind. And I, I just love how the Bible begins. It, uh, it, it presents the two main characters in the rest of Scripture, God and humans. But it, and it does so in a way that reveals the essence of each character. If, if you listen through those first 26 episodes on Genesis chapter 1, the first creation account, really it's Genesis 1, 1 through uh, Genesis 2, 4, uh, it was primarily about God. It was everything about what God did and what God said, what God created, and, and, and if you remember, what Moses did in writing that account is he compared and contrasted God with all the gods of the other religions in his day. And basically what he did is showed us that Elohim is better than and superior to all those other gods. Most importantly, the theme that sort of seemed to pop up over and over and over was uh, in, the, in these comparisons with the gods and the religions of, the other, of, of these other religions was that God was relational, and that God was completely non-violent. All these other creation accounts, you remember, were brought about, the world was created through war and bloodshed and cutting bodies in half and spilling blood and all these other things, but uh, battle and murder and all that, okay? But in Genesis, there is nothing of the kind. It's only filled, the creation account in Genesis 1 is only filled with love and care and all that is good, all right? And so that shows us the nature and character of God from Genesis 1. While Genesis 1 is all about God, Genesis 2 and 3 and 4 and, and, and following are all about people. Now, if you're like me, you're sort of wondering, why do we need chapters in the Bible that tell us about people? I mean, we're people. We're humans. Don't we know everything there is to know about humans? Well, you might be surprised as we go along to discover that these three chapters in Genesis reveal some insights about the human condition 
which most humans are completely ignorant of and blind to. Yeah, it is true. We are humans. But the truth, the real biblical truth, is that we do not know ourselves the way we think we do. In fact, I sometimes think, as I was studying, preparing these chapters, and even some of the things I've been learning in my research and reading over the past, I don't know, three years, four years or so, I sometimes think that we humans know less about ourselves than we know about God. I sometimes think that the real reason the Bible was written and given to us, inspired by God, is not primarily to teach us about God, but to teach us about ourselves. I know that's sort of a radical idea, but the more I study Scripture, the more convinced of it I become. God gave us the Bible, yeah, to teach us about himself, but more than that, to teach us about ourselves. Anyway, we'll begin to see some of this. Genesis 2, 3, and 4 lays the foundation for all of this. So if you think you know the story and the truth of Genesis 2 through 4, and you're just sort of considering skipping out on these next several podcasts, please, please, please reconsider. There is way more in these chapters than just, you know, some account of about the fall of mankind and the, the, the you know, the temptation and the, them getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and then the murder of Abel by Cain. These chapters, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, they reveal the very foundation of culture and religion. They reveal a shocking, absolutely shocking, and surprising explanation about the human condition. Uh, they, they show us what sin really is. You think you know what sin is? Mm. Think again. These chapters show us what sin really is. And they introduce a revolutionary idea about the root cause and, and results of sin. And also why humans are violent and all these other things. Okay, so, and even what violence is. Uh, most importantly of all, these chapters provide a foundational, the foundational ideas and themes for understanding the rest of Scripture. If, if you are like me and you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand, uh, I don't know, why relationships are so different, if, if you want to understand where religion comes from and what culture and society is built on, if you want to understand why bad things happen in your life, if you even want to understand what's going on in the world today, understand current events and world history, why nations go to war, and just a whole myriad of other truths about human society and culture and religion and psychology and emotions and all that stuff, then you absolutely do not want to miss these studies from Genesis 2 through 4. And I am not at all exaggerating on the importance of these chapters. So, with that sort of introduction in mind, um, let, let's. Uh, I'm just so excited. I hope you can understand. I'm so excited to share with you these what, what I've what I've learned from Genesis two through four. Uh, what we're going to learn uh, to look at today is just sort of the opening verses. We're going to be looking at Genesis two verses four through six. Uh, these verses uh, set the stage for what for what follows in the rest of these chapters. So let's begin in Genesis two four. Uh, Genesis two four mentions the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, This first part of the second creation account points back to the first part of the first creation account in Genesis 1.1, which talks about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so similar words, similar phrasing as we saw there. 
And the introductory statement there was that God created the heavens and the earth. And the fact that the opening words here are so similar indicates that this new creation account is beginning. Now, let's, be, let's begin with the question why there are two creation accounts. Lots of different scholars answer that question in, in different ways. I believe, and I could, we could get into all their explanations, but I won't bore you with all those explanations. I believe that the simplest answer is that while the first creation account in Genesis 1-1 is theological poetry about God, remember we saw that as we went along, it's this polemical, this theological, poetical way of, of, of introducing God to us, this account, which begins here in, in verse 4 of chapter 2, is theological history about humanity. So Genesis 1 uses theological poetry to introduce God to us, and Genesis 2 is using theological history to introduce man to us. That's what we see, really, by one of the key words Moses uses in Genesis 2.4. It's that word, history. Uh, this is the Hebrew word, toledot, and it might better be translated as generations, depending on your Bible translation. That is how it will be translated. In the Latin, it was Genesis, which is where we get the name for our, our, the book of Genesis. Uh, sort of a key word throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, it appears ten times in Genesis, and it basically is a structural marker throughout the book. Uh, every time the author of Genesis wants to introduce a new major event, he uses this word toledote. Uh, as used in Genesis, it's sort of a hinge word. A literary marker. It shows that a transition is taking place in the text. And you can go through and look at all the ten places where that word is used. Basically, you see that what it does is it summarizes everything that came before and alerts the reader that a transition in the text is occurring. So, here in Genesis 2-4, in the New King James, we have this word history. And basically, what Moses is showing us is there's a transition from the theological poetry about God in Genesis chapter 1 to a theological history about man in Genesis chapter 2. So it summarizes the poetical creation account about God in Genesis 1 and then introduces the historical creation account about man in Genesis 2. Okay, uh, and, and moving on from there, then the first part, the fir as first part of this transition, the first piece of information we receive in Genesis 2-4 is the name of God. Uh, again, we're transitioning here. So even though Genesis 2 is really about man, uh, we're, we're transitioning from God to man. And so Moses begins with something new about God in Genesis 2-4. And it's the name of God. In Genesis 1, God was always referred to as Elohim. I frequently referred to him as Yahweh in those podcasts, but that's not because Genesis 1 did that. I was sort of looking ahead I knew what was coming in Genesis chapter 2, and I knew that God's name was Yahweh, so that's why I did that. But the name of God is not actually introduced until here in Genesis 2-4, and it's the word Yahweh. Now, in your English translations, uh, it's going to be written as Lord, all in caps, typically, L-O-R-D in, in all caps. And uh, that's because Yahweh, uh, some people of some religions, especially Jewish people, will never pronounce the name of God. They'll say Hashem. Um, and even uh, there, are, there will be Christians who will do the same thing, or they will refer to, to Yahweh. They won't say Yahweh. They'll say, they'll say the Lord or something like that. And that's just um, because of the commandment to not say the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so some people 
to, to protect themselves against that, just simply don't say the name of God at all. Um, anyway, so, so the name here is Yahweh. And again, lots of scholars see this. They see that God is referred to as Elohim in Genesis chapter 1 and Yahweh in Genesis chapter 2. And so they say, see, this is evidence that there is a new author, that uh, one author wrote Genesis 1 and a completely different author wrote Genesis 2. And there's all these arguments. That's called the J part of that's part of one of the arguments for the JEDP theory, the source theory of, of Genesis. And uh, I'm not even going to get into it. It's it's the whole debate bores me. I really don't think it matters one bit. Okay, let me back up. Is it true? I don't know. Again, I think I said in some earlier podcasts, and it might be true. It might very well be true. Of course, in my opinion, even if it is true, I think Moses was the one who used different sources to compile and prepare the account as we have it. But, you know, even again, I don't care about those arguments. Really, the main question that concerns me is not primarily who wrote the text or or, or what what sources they used when they wrote the text. But but the, the main question for me is, what does the text mean the way it is found in our Bibles? As we're reading the text on our computer screens or on our smartphones or even in our Bibles, it's sitting on our lap. The question is, as we have the Bible today, what does the meaning of the text mean? Why do we have this change in the word used for God from Elohim to Yahweh? And I believe that when we ask those sorts of questions, the, the meaning of the biblical text becomes much more clear. Here in, in uh, Genesis 2, Since we are being introduced to mankind in Genesis 2, I believe that is why we get a new name for God in Genesis 2-4. When you go through Scripture and look at how uh, God interacts with humans, God primarily interacts with humans as Yahweh, uh, which means I am, by the way. If you translate it from the Hebrew, it means I am. So when God first introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush, God introduces himself as Yahweh. And you could go on through through Scripture that way. So referring to God as Yahweh is referring to God as the one who exists in a loving and caring relationship with humans. Uh, And this becomes much more clear as Genesis unfolds. That's why I think there is a name change for God in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is about humans and our relationship to God. God relates to us as Yahweh, therefore that's why we get this introduction of his name in Genesis 2.4. But that's not the only change or difference that we see in Genesis 2.4 through 6 when we compare it with Genesis chapter 1. There's other differences as well. And if you've ever read these accounts carefully, you may have noticed that the second creation account differs quite a bit from the first creation account. For example, in the first creation account of Genesis 1, the plants and trees are brought forth from the ground on day 3. It's Genesis 1.12. And humans, both the man and the woman together, they are created on day 6 after God creates all the animals. Now, here in Genesis 2, though, the text repeatedly says that man was created before there were any plants. So look in Genesis 2.5, for example, uh, and uh, it is only after God creates man that he then brings forth the trees and the plants. Genesis 2.9, 
Uh, furthermore, we have the creation of the plant, of the animals in between the creation of the man and the woman. In Genesis 1, all the animals are created and then the man and the woman. In Genesis 2, God creates the man, then he creates the animals, then he creates the woman. That's how it works here in, G- in Genesis 2. You could read, look at verses, verses uh, 18 through 22 to show this. Now, um, that's just uh, the main differences here. And obviously, there's lots of scholarly explanations for how to reconcile Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 so that they don't contradict. And I've read a number of these explanations, and I find them only partially persuasive. And I'm, again, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. If you, if you really want to read the various scholarly views about how to reconcile the differences between the first creation account in Genesis 1 and the second creation account in Genesis 2, Basically, all you need to do is pick up any Bible commentary on Genesis. Uh, I've list some of my favorites in the show notes for this episode. And uh, go to the sections on Genesis 2 and you'll see. You know, some of them will list the various views and why they, which one they hold to and why they think that one's best. I'm not going to do that in this podcast. I'm not going to relate to you the various viewpoints. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to do that for three reasons. First, it's going to take too long. I don't want to. I don't want to waste an hour of our time going through all of the details on that. Second, it will probably bore you to tears. Third, most importantly, I think that such attempts to reconcile Genesis one and Genesis two completely miss the entire point and purpose of the text. Trying to reconcile Genesis one with Genesis two simply shows you don't know how to read the text. I'm not trying to insult all those Bible scholars, okay? I understand there's reasons for reconciling the two, but I just think the such such attempts to reconcile them miss the entire point. So when it comes to reconciling these two creation accounts, you don't have to know what the scholarly views are because you don't need to choose between them. <laughs> the scholarly attempts to reconcile the two accounts simply miss simply uh, reveal a misunderstanding of how to read the two accounts. And you know how to read them because I've been telling you. Genesis 1 is theological poetry about God. Genesis 2 is more of a theological history about man. And because one is sort of more poetry, one is sort of more history, but they're both primarily theological, you don't have to get the two accounts to line up at all. You don't even need to try It'd be like <clears throat> trying to get the a Shakespeare play. Let's let's put it this way. It's it's it'd be like trying to get a play from Shakespeare to line up with the various historical records about when that play takes place. Yeah, there might be some overlap between what Shakespeare has in one of his his plays and the actual historical records for the time period that Shakespeare wrote his play about. But to try to get the events, the historical, the actual historical events to, to line up with what Shakespeare recorded in one of his plays is to miss the entire point of the history on the one hand and the Shakespeare play on the other. For example, you take the actual historical records of Henry IV. Okay, you go find some history books, some historical documents about Henry IV. Now, take those and try to get them to line up with Shakespeare's play, Henry IV. Now, will there be some overlap? Yes, of course. But there's going to be a lot of differences. Okay, does that mean that 
you know, the history is wrong or the play. No, to answer, just begin to ask those sorts of questions about either history or the play simply reveals you're not understanding how to read either one. You could do the same with, with the historical events about Julius Caesar and Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, okay? You, you can't even, you don't even want to try to reconcile the two because that just shows you that you're missing the point of both. Let me give you a different example. This one from Art. Have you ever seen the 1851 painting by Emmanuel Lutz of George Washington crossing the Delaware River? If you haven't, I'll include it uh, on, on the show notes for this page. Go to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 2, 4 through 6 to see it. And uh, basically, the picture is of him crossing the Delaware River on this boat. And he's standing up in the boat. He's got one leg up on a seat as he scans the distant shore, and his flag bearer is standing behind him with the American flag. There's some uh, other boats sort of in the background, uh, and there's some other soldiers in the boat with George Washington and his flag bearer. And then in the water, there's these large chunks of ice, which the soldiers in the boat are pushing out of the way with their oars as they paddle across the Delaware River. That's the painting, and it's a wonderful painting. Uh, but historically, the painting is not accurate at all. Historians have pointed out that, number one, the boat is way too big for boats of that time period. It's not, they, they didn't use boats that large. Okay, minor detail. Second, though, historians have pointed out that if Washington had been standing up in the boat, the way the picture portrays, especially since the boat was smaller, than the picture portrays, he likely would have capsized the boat with everyone in it, and they all would have drowned, especially with all the chunks of ice in the river, if they were actually there. Furthermore, though, the, the, the flag, the American flag that Washington's flag bearer is holding, okay, didn't even exist at the time Washington crossed the Delaware River. It wasn't even uh, invented or, or put together, that, that flag, that particular flag, until at least six months later, okay? So there's, there's some other details, a couple other problems with the painting, but you get the point. So should we try to get the painting to reconcile with the actual historical event of the crossing of the Delaware? Or should we just throw out the painting because it's so full of errors? You know, it's meaningless. It's, it's just, it's, you know, what is full of, full of inaccuracies. Let's just toss it out. No, 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 no. The painting is full of truth. Emmanuel Lutz took some artistic license. Yes, he did with the painting. But why did he do that? It was to reveal a truth that Lutz wanted to portray. It doesn't mean the painting is wrong. We have to ask why Lutz took the artistic license, why he made the changes, why he painted the flag the way he did and George Washington the way he did uh, to present a particular truth that Lutz wanted the people who saw this picture to see. And what was that? Well, he's standing in this boat and he's surveying the future, the, the, the far shore, and he's got this flag in him. What it's representing is George Washington, this great, courageous leader, and basically the future of the American, uh, the, the United States of America is riding in the boat with him across this dangerous river to its future. 
Okay, that's represented by the American flag. It hadn't been created yet, that particular flag, but the future of America was riding in the boat with this courageous leader with him. Now, is it historically accurate? Is that really? No, it's not. And so could we argue about that? Yes, we could, but it misses the entire point of the painting. Anyway, you get the point. This is how to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They are two different ways of looking at the same event. One is theological poetry, the other one is theological history. And while there are discrepancies, differences between the two accounts, these differences should not, you don't need to try to to reconcile them or erase them or, or do away with them. Instead, Embrace them, recognize them, emphasize them even, because it is in the differences that helps us see the truths that these two accounts independently make. We don't try to get rid of the differences or ignore them. Instead, focus in on them, because that is where the real truth of the text comes out. What are some of these other differences in our text? We already talked about the name of God. Uh, Genesis 1-2, here's, here's some others though. Genesis 1-2 describes the pre-creation world as this watery chaos. Interestingly though, the condition of the world in Genesis 2, 5-6 is a barren landscape. Okay, there's this land and there's no plants on it. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, just as I pointed out when we looked at the description of the pre-creation condition of the world in Genesis 1, you might remember back then, I said that uh, there were lots of other religious creation accounts which also described the pre-creation world as a watery chaos. Well, not surprisingly, there's also lots of other religious creation accounts that describe the world basically as Moses does here in the second creation account as this barren landscape. So uh, there's other creation myths from other religions which saw the earth as this dusty, dry, and barren world and needed humans and God and other things for the plants to be created and all that, okay? So um, I'm not going to get into that as much this time as I did in Genesis 1 because I don't think it's the point as much as it was in Genesis chapter 1. If you really want to read more on that, I, I highly recommend a book by John Walton called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Uh, also, uh, the commentary on Genesis by Gordon Wenham um, in, the, in the world, the Word Biblical Commentary series, that also is excellent to show you some of these historical religious backgrounds about this barren, dusty, dry landscape uh, that we are introduced to here. There, there's links to those books and a few other resources in the show notes for this episode. So uh, those are some of the differences, but what is the truth? Again, Noticing these differences, what is the truth that Moses is presenting? Well, uh, note from Genesis 2.5 that bringing forth plants is considered to be this joint venture between God and man. It's implied that the reason there are no plants is because God is doing his part. He's, he's bringing up mist um, from the ground, but um, you know God has to water the plants. That's, that's God's part. But the other, but the reason there are no plants is because there is no man to till the ground. So you need both for the plants to grow. And this goes back to sort of what we saw about man in Genesis 1, 26-31, where God created humans to be co-regents with God, to, to rule and reign with God, work alongside God in running creation. And we see that exact thing here. Genesis 2.6 describes how this mist came up from the ground to cover the face of the earth. Um, 
that by the way, that this idea of mist covering the face of the earth, it's an allusion back to one two, where water covered the face of the earth. Also, though, it's a foreshadowing to Genesis 6, where water breaks forth from the earth to cover the earth in a watery chaos once again. Okay, so there's this play on words there. Uh, There's also a play on words here with the reference to earth and the ground. This next verse talks about the creation of man, Genesis 2-7, from the dust of the ground. Again, so there's this play on earth, and God names him Adam, okay, which means earth or ground. So um, we're seeing, though, that that although God didn't send the rain, he was sending mist to water the ground, but still there was no plants. Why not? Well, the text says there was no plants because there was no man to till the ground. So God is doing his part in creation, but there were no plants because there was no man to do man's part. And all of that gets corrected in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Okay, there's been leading up to the creation of man because Genesis chapter 2 is about man. When I say man, I mean man and woman. I hope you're not offended by that. I mean I mean humanity in general, mankind in a sense. Anyway, we're going to look at Genesis 2-7 next time. I'm running out of time in this, and I want, really want to emphasize the creation of man in verse 2-7. So we'll save that for the next episode of the One Verse Podcast. But as we close this episode out, did, did you learn anything revolutionary from this episode about humanity and the human condition? No, you probably didn't. You know, at the beginning of this episode, I said, oh, these chapters are so important. They, they lay the foundation for everything. They reveal to us, man, you know, something about ourselves. You probably, most people don't even know. You might not, and you might, you've been listening, and you're waiting, and I haven't really presented anything, okay? That's because Genesis 2, 4 through 6, it's just the introduction. It sets the scene for everything that follows, and, and the scene here, I want you to have it firmly in your mind. The scene is this barren landscape. It has no plants. The scene is we have a relational God, Yahweh, who has no one to relate to. And that is the scene. A landscape with no plants, a relational God with no relationship. And now that that scene is set, the real action of the second creation account can begin. And it does so with a bang in Genesis 2-7. I promise you, there is a bang in Genesis 2-7, an explosion of shock of what we read in Genesis 2-7. So you definitely don't want to miss the next episode of the One Verse Podcast, which we will look at next week. Now, to close out this episode, I want to ask you, we've seen that God is relational, but here in Genesis 2, so far, he doesn't have anyone to relate to. And I want to ask you if you view God as relational. You say, of course I do. But do you really? Ask yourself, do you really believe that God not only loves you? Everybody knows, oh, God loves me, God loves me. Do you believe God likes you? That, that he desires nothing more than to spend time with you. Not doing religious stuff, you know, well, sure, God's with me when I go to church and when I read my Bible. No, 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 no. That God likes you so much, he wants to hang out with you, do what you're doing to be in your presence. He wants to be friends with you. He wants to join you in your day with whatever it is you are doing. That is what it means for God to be relational. We Christians sometimes get this all twisted up and backwards. We talk about us 
you know, us loving God and us spending time with God and us, you know, going with God to be in God's presence and us working for God and us doing the work of God. But as, as we're beginning to see here in Genesis 2, it actually works the other way around. God is a relational God, which means that He desires to be in a relationship with us. He didn't create us just so we could, so He could get worshipers. Uh, he created us so that He could get friends. When He creates, it's not so that we can do His work in the world, but really so that He could work alongside us in our world. Again, what does the text say? The text says there were no plants because God was watering, but man didn't till. God wants to work alongside us in the field, helping us bring plants from the soil. This week, here's what I want to invite you to do. This week, as you go about your daily routine, as your tasks, you know, as you're vacuuming the house, as you're driving to work, as you're balancing your checkbook, as you're digging in your garden, as you're washing the dishes, as you're petting your dog, think about inviting God to join you. God likes you. He likes to be with you. Whether you're taking walks, eating meals, playing with your children, having conversations with others, weeding your garden, He does all these things in Genesis 2, by the way. We're going to see these very mundane things of life, everyday occurrences of life. It's what God does with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. He goes on walks with them. He plays with the animals with them. He digs in the dirt with them. That means God wants to do these things with you as well. So whatever it is you're doing this week, invite God along. There is nothing nothing he desires more.